Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, where we will focus our attention on Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19, and we will continue our short teaching series on the significance of Jesus' ascension and why it's a vital essential element of the gospel. So in just a moment, I'll read Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 19. And just that paragraph there that's probably in most of your Bibles, verses 19 to 25. In each of these messages, I've been trying to help us understand what is the gospel in general and why the ascension is vital in particular. And as we think about what is the gospel in general, A lot of times in our pluralistic society, the gospel can be seen or thought of, especially those outside of the church, as the message of Christianity that is a way to a God, the God. I've heard it very popularly explained that if God were metaphorically the top of a mountain, the great God of all of the religions is actually one and the same, and that because this is the cosmic mountain of the entire universe throughout history and in various parts of the world. There's various paths up the mountain. There's the Christian way up the mountain. There is the Buddhist, the Hindu, the Muslim, the Jewish way. Each of them have their strengths and weaknesses. And it's arrogant of you to think that you are the way up the mountain. And so I want to think about that concept as we dive into God's word. Is Christianity a way up the mountain to be with God? Well, let's read God's word in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The title of this message is, What is the Way to Worship? Another way to say it is, What is the Way to God? Is it a way up the mountain so you can commune and dwell with and be with God Being with God, being in his presence, I think that's a synonym for what I mean by worship, especially in this message. So big idea, what is the way to God? What is the way to worship? And I want to answer that question in three different ways. In many ways, they will be summarizing the gospel and the significance of Jesus's V-shaped journey of descent and ascent. So let's first consider it this way. 
What is the direction we would be aiming for? What is the way, the path, and how do you rightly align yourself? So should I go this way or that way? And how is my posture aiming me in the right direction in the first place? And so as we look at our text, I want us to make sure it's clear and kind of part of the big goal and idea of what we're thinking through regarding the gospel. Starting in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. See, I think that's the aim, the direction, the goal. We want to enter into the holy places. And then you see that again in verse 21. And since we have a great great high priest over the house of God, we want to enter the holy places. Or in other words, we want to be in the house of God. So the way, the path toward God, the God of the Bible, is first and foremost a path that aims at God himself. To dwell in his presence, to enter into his holy place or his house, as it says. The ultimate goal of the Bible starting in the very first pages to the very end of the Bible. Genesis to Revelation is for God and humans to dwell together. Read through Genesis 21 again and notice the great crescendo crescendo of the Bible climactically coming to its consummation. Man and God will dwell together. And this is glorious good news. So the goal of the gospel is God. The ultimate goal is not for your sins to be taken away. The ultimate end goal is not for the wrath of God to be satisfied or have a propitiation. The goal is not to have a new heart or a new life. Each of those things are part of the good news, but each of them are a means to the appropriate end, the end that is God. God. Is that the end, aim, goal? Is that... The posture, is that what you're aiming toward when you think about what it means to be a Christian? One author and pastor has written, God is the gospel. It's the title of one of his books. And in that book, he says, the critical question for us and for everyone is this. If you could have heaven, and heaven would be a place with no sickness, You would have all the friends that you've ever had on earth. You would have the greatest foods that you've ever liked. All of the enjoyment of the greatest leisure activities that you have ever enjoyed. All the natural beauties of the earth that you could ever see. And all of the physical pleasures that you have ever tasted. No human conflict. No natural disasters. Would you be happy in heaven? If all of those things existed, but Jesus Christ were not there. Heaven without God is like going on a honeymoon without a spouse. It's like a palace or kingdom without a king. The presence of God is the essence and the end goal of the heavenly paradise. Samuel Rutherford is an older, passed away pastor He once wrote, O my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without you, it would be a hell. And if I could be in the place of hell but have you, then that would be enough heaven for me. For you are all the heaven that I want. Friends, we need to begin by thinking about the way and the path 
as not just certain means, but the end goal, how those means of the death of Jesus on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his satisfying the wrath of God, all of the beautiful things that make the gospel good are good insofar as they lead us to be with God. And so is that what you want? Is that the aim or the goal of your life, to know him, to see him? Do you understand that is the central and the irreducible goal of the gospel? And does our church, Embassy, help redirect each other back toward God? That's just the first basic observation of our text, to enter into his presence, to be in his house. But the more important question and the main kind of aim of this message is to say, all right, but what is the way? How do we get there? Okay, that could be the goal, but there is a chasm. There is a deep separation between us and God. And so how do we get, how do we get to God? What is the way? Not just as in the aim, but the path and the means by which we get to that destination. How do we get into the holy place of God? And our text is very clear. Look down again at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter, you're allowed to enter into communion and dwell in the house of God. How? How? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, since we have confidence, boldness, sometimes some translators want to say the concept here is about access. You are authorized to be with God. You have the golden ticket. You have backstage passes to God. How? What's the way in? And the key word here is in verse 19, the very first word, it's a therefore. Therefore, summarizing everything that I've covered so far in this book, the blood of Jesus is the only way. The new and living path opened through the curtain that is the flesh of Jesus Christ is the only way. Only if Jesus is our great high priest can you enter in. To put it in other words, in the, this sermon teaching series that we've been going through, if God does not come down in the person of Christ, descend from heaven to earth, become a man, suffer in our place as the once and for all sacrifice, then rise again from the dead, ascend into heaven, then there is no access to God the Father. There is no entrance into the heavenly place. There is no worship. You would not have any reason to come to church. You could not pray. You should not do it boldly. You should not sing songs. You could not hear from God. There is no worship without Christ in the heavens right now as our mediator. The good news is that Jesus did not just come down, suffer, die on a cross, and rise again. It is also that he ascended into heaven and is right now our priest and our king. That is the point of the book of Hebrews, not just our passage. The whole book is about making that point clear. In many ways, I think if I could summarize it as simple as possible, it would be that what you're reading when you read the book of Hebrews 
is one of the earliest sermons that have ever been written down and recorded in Christian church history. This is a long sermon, and it's primarily a sermon on one Old Testament passage, Psalm 110, that David just read for us in our service. Psalm 110 is about a king seated at the right hand of God, putting all enemies under his feet. And then there's a second movement in that psalm about that same king being the one who is a priest, just like Melchizedek was a priest and a king. A king-priest, a priest-king, both in one person. That's what Psalm 110 is all about. So here's what I want to do. I want to make sure you see just a quick brief, and I, I'm pretty convinced I can do this quickly, a quick brief overview of the whole book of Hebrews that shows Psalm 110 as like its main point of the whole sermon. So start at the very beginning, and you're going to notice this repeated emphasis of quoting and referring to this psalm, Psalm 110. So right there in verse 3, the very first chapter of the book, he says in verse 3, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he is upholding the universe by the word of his power. And he is doing this after he made the purification for sins, sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high, becoming much superior to angels, as is the name the inherited is much more excellent than theirs. First reference to Psalm 110 and sitting down at the right hand of God on the majesty on high is in verse 3 as he's introducing the whole sermon intro beginning point. Then in verse 4 you notice he's saying Jesus is better than the angels. This status is better than all other spiritual beings in the heavens where he is seated. And then look down at verse 13 where he says, Now, to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Direct quote of Psalm 110 as he's making his first kind of movement point that Jesus is better than the angels. Flip over to chapter 2 and you're going to notice he's still talking about Jesus as superior to the angels when in verse 10 he says... Part of why we know that Jesus is above all is that it was fitting for him that he would bring many sons to glory and become the founder of their salvation, making perfect through his suffering. Jesus, it was fitting that Jesus would bring sons to glory. His job is to bring us into the glorious presence of God through his suffering, and by this he becomes Look at the the language here, the founder of their salvation. This word founder is the Greek word archegos, and it is a very rare and unusual word, and it means to be the forerunner that's blazing a trail going where no one else has gone before. So imagine like this thick, massive jungle that nobody has entered into before. Jesus is the one clearing a path through that jungle for us to come right behind him and say, we're going to follow on your coattails. We are going to take the path that you have blazed and and you are going to bring us to glory through your sufferings. Drop down to verse 16 of chapter 2. For surely it was not the angels that he is helping, but he is helping the offspring of Abraham Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
The reason I wanted to read this passage is to show that yet again, Jesus's glory, his status is that he is a priest for humans representing us and knows what it's like to be human. In every single way that you have experienced humanity, Jesus has experienced humanity. Therefore, it's fitting that he suffered. It's fitting that God would have someone represent all of humans who suffer so much. And that's what Jesus has done in his descent. He has become one of us, suffered like us, been tempted like we have been tempted. Yet he did this without sin. And therefore, he is exalted to the Father's right hand. When you turn to chapter 3, you're going to notice that he moves from angels to Moses. And then into Joshua. And he says, not only is Jesus superior to angels, he's superior to Moses. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. Superior to Moses. And then he continues into chapter 4 to talk about how Jesus is the ultimate Joshua leading us into the Sabbath rest of the promised land. Then skip your eyes over to the end of chapter 4. This, by my friends, if you're really studying the whole book of Hebrews, this passage in Hebrews 4 is a very big, important turning point transition of the whole sermon. Chapter 4, and I want you to look at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus is superior to Moses, to Joshua, and now he specifically turns a corner and says, he is our high priest. He's superior to all of the Levitical priests throughout the Old Testament. He is the only priest you will ever need. Pastor Phil is not your priest. No earthly human is your priest. Jesus alone is the human priest that is our mediator between us and God. And then he continues this argument from chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. And then look at chapter 8. I don't think it could be any more clear than reading at the beginning of chapter 8 what he's trying to communicate. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point that I'm trying to say is this. Well, is that pretty clear? What's, what's your main point? What's your big idea, pastor of the letter of Hebrews, the, the sermon of Hebrews? Here's my, high po my, my, my point. We have a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. There is the main point. And he continues to spell that out more in chapter 8, 9, and then eventually to where we were in chapter 10. But we should just pause for a moment. Is it vital in terms of the understanding of the Bible and the gospel for you to think about God sending Jesus to descend and become a human and sympathize with our sorrows, and suffer the way we have suffered. Die on a cross as a sacrificial substitute offering. Ascend from the grave all the way up, as it says here in chapter 8, to the right hand of the throne of the majesty, a minister in the holy places in the true tent. That is the point of this sermon. The point of Hebrews and the point of hopefully my sermon 
this sermon as we listen to it. The gospel is not making Jesus' descent and ascent journey just as a secondary kind of ancillary take-it-or-leave-it kind of point. It's not the footnote to the end of the gospel. It is part of the climactic crescendo of the gospel. And in this teaching series, we have seen Peter's very first sermon makes that point very clear. One of the best summaries of the gospel can be found in 1 Corinthians 15 or Philippians 2 as they nicely and neatly summarize the gospel. And you can see the journey of Jesus in both of those places. And now here we are in Hebrews. The descent and ascent is the main point of the whole book. And therefore, we can look at Hebrews chapter 8 verse 4 and say this. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. This is vital for you to see. In verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 8, it says, now if he were on earth, this is the the main thing we're trying to think through. So what if Jesus didn't ascend to heaven? Would that matter? No big deal? If he were on earth, then you would not have a high priest. Jesus would not be in the heavens. There would not be a superior priest that actually went into the real holy of holies. For the tent and the temple that was on the earth was just a shadow and a copy. But Jesus is the real priest. And he is going into the real temple. And he is communing with the real God in the heavens. And that brings us to where we are in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. The way to worship, how do we get there? I think our text and really the whole book of Hebrews makes it very black and white for us. It's Jesus. The way to God the Father, the way to heaven is the path of Jesus. But he's not just blazing a path for us to follow or to put it another way. Let's go back to the beginning illustration. God's in the top of the mountain and there's various paths up the mountain and Jesus you know, went through the, the deep jungle path and went a way that nobody's gone before. And it was a challenging and a difficult path filled with suffering. And, and, and that wasn't really the life of, of Buddha or Muhammad or, or these other kind of world religions. Jesus had a unique path. And so it's unique, but it's just another path, right? Wrong. You're missing the whole point. If you think of Jesus just simply as taking a path up to God so that you can draw near and that basically all you do is climb the mountain yourself. He is the way like the horse that pulls a carriage. He does not just blaze the trail. He also pulls us along. He brings the sons into glory, Hebrews 2 says. It is not our job to climb with our own effort and follow the footsteps of Jesus and that be the way we get to God. It is not like if you're thinking about space and God is up in the heavens and we need a rocket ship to get into space that Jesus was the first to make it to the moon or something. It's not that kind of way. It's he is the rocket ship that you must climb into in the same way that he is the carriage that you must sit in and say, God, I want to get to you, but I know that in and of myself, I cannot. 
make it. And more often than not, I'm drawn away and and start getting spun around and going the wrong direction. I need to cling to Christ and his carriage to climb up in his rocket ship. You will not make it up the mountain if all you're doing is saying, yeah, I'm following Jesus. You can't be like him. And this is the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other world religion and philosophy. If every other world religion is saying, yeah, we all got one God, and we're all worshiping basically the same God, and we all have certain paths up the mountain. Christianity is not a path that says, here's the list of Ten Commandments. Here's the golden rule. Follow Jesus by obeying these rules, and then you make it up to God. Christianity is saying, God came down to you. Is that what Islam says? The God of Islam, Allah, comes down and meets you where you're at, sees you dead on the ground, no life within you, broken in your sin, and says, I'm going to help you get up. I'm going to carry you on my back. All you need to do is cling to me, and I will do the work to take you to God myself. That's not Islam. That's not Hinduism. That's not Buddhism. That's not Jewish Orthodox faith. There is something distinctly different about the message of the gospel. It's that God made a way through Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just a path. It was the very means to get us to God. Friends, do you believe this? Is this good news to you? Do you see how different, radically upside down, the gospel is? And why you should believe it with all of your heart? In many ways, it sounds good. The last and final part of our question, what is the way to worship? Well, we know it's God. God's the goal. And we know the means to get there is Jesus. But practically, like, okay, so what does that mean? What does it look like to climb into the carriage, to ride on the rocket ship of Christ? As he ascends up, how do we ascend with him in the heavenly places? That's our third and final point of this message. The way to worship, the how-to, the very practical question for each of us is that because the way has been opened, three things are told to us by the writer and the preacher of Hebrews. Look at the text with me again. I'll just read it for you and then summarize it. In verse 21, it says, since then we have this great high priest over the house of God. He's opened up access to heaven. Therefore, this is what you should do. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with the heart's sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Second, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And third, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I don't know if you've seen this, but if you look carefully at each of those three things, draw near, hold fast, and stir up. Those three things are actually summarized by faith, hope, and love. Draw near with full assurance of faith. I'm getting it right from the text. You can look down and see it with your own eyes. Like faith, hope, and love. Draw near with a full assurance of faith. Hold fast the confession of hope and stir up one another to love and good works. Very practically, how do we worship 
now knowing that Jesus has redirected our hearts to the one and true right creator God. We're we're rightly aligned with not only the right path, but the right means. It's through the blood of Jesus. It is not by our works of righteousness that we climb and ascend. It is only because he has ascended that the Spirit of God now brings us and unites us, catapults us into the heavens with him. So first, draw near with full assurance, confidence, faith that you believe that that's true. You draw near by believing, by faith, that this is true. You have a changed heart. This is what's being explained in this first point when he says, let us draw near and do so with a true heart in full assurance of faith. How do you get a true heart with full assurance of faith? What do you need to do? Is is that some sort of project for you to figure out and accomplish? It is the Spirit of God that gets poured out on the basis of Jesus' ascension to change your heart and write the law of God on your heart so that you have a true changed heart. This is actually what we see. Just look at chapter 10, verse 16. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them that after those days declares the Lord, I will put my law on their heart. I will write my laws on their mind. True hearts, changed minds is the work of God transforming us through the Spirit of God. Draw near to God through the power of the Spirit transforming you and do that just by clinging by faith. Faith. It's a non-work work. It's a rest. It's a He's going to take me and catapult me into the heavens, so I'm just going to enjoy and get along for the ride. If it was up to me, I would get stuck over and over again and lost and tripped and fallen if I could even get up. If you want to know how well you're doing at this, just a very practical pastoral way, do you know that your hearts and your consciences have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, that your bodies have been washed with pure water? Do you have full assurance of faith? One way you can just test yourself and say, am I living with confidence in the gospel by faith? Look back at how you respond the moments after you sin, especially if you have an addictive habit or sin and you just feel so discouraged like you're the worst person in the world, You'll know that if you feel yourself to be too dirty for God, that maybe you skipped church last week, or maybe some of you today, as you're now re-listening to this sermon recording, or something like that. How many of us think, oh no, I'm not worthy. Therefore, I'm not going to go to church. You're not believing by faith that he has washed, he has cleansed, he has given you a new heart. Faith looks at your sinful predicament and says, that's exactly why I would go to church. That's exactly why I would not give up meeting together so that I would be stirred up by faith and hold fast to hope and be given over to love. So often, we are not believing the gospel when we are running away from God, thinking that he's out to get us, that he's so disappointed with us. So many of us think that confession of sin is like this horrible punishment rather than the means of grace by the blood of Jesus to draw you in and near. 
I wonder if any of you will leave here today and realize that you're really not believing the gospel by the way that you respond in the moments or the days or the weeks after you start tumbling down into some sort of sinful pattern. Draw near, he says, confidently, boldly. You have access. That access was purchased only by his blood and not by your self-deprecation of beating myself up. Well, I'm not good enough, so I'll just beat myself up in pity. Look to Jesus. He's there now and enter into the holy place, not because you're so great, but because Jesus is a great priest. That's how you can come to church week in and week out and not have this up and down emotional roller coaster of like, I'm not good enough today. These other people, they seem to have their act together. Newsflash, nobody has their act together. We all need Jesus as the one who purifies, sanctifies, perfects, wash, and perfects meaning continually sanctifying. So that's the first exhortation that he gives. Draw near with full assurance of faith because you know you have a great high priest in the heavens. And you will know that your faith in his priestly service and the wonderful offering that he gave to the Father is sufficient. Because you look up and you say, there's nothing else that the Father needs. He's got it all right in front of him with Jesus. He doesn't need any more sacrifice of sin. I don't need to beat myself up. I don't need somebody to punish me. You know what I need? I need to hear the gospel. That's when you'll know. You're really walking in the faith that's being taught here in Hebrews 10. Secondly, we draw near with full assurance of faith. Faith, then hope. Hold fast the confession of our hope. Do this without wavering. And then notice where he says, for. For what? What's the grounds for you to not waver? Your willpower? Your strength to hold on? Hold on with all of your might. You just hold on because this is up to you. Hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering because you know he is faithful. One of the reasons that we struggle so much with not only coming to church after we've sinned, but even with doubts, insecurities in our Christian life, is because we're looking in instead of looking up. He's faithful. On the basis of his promises, cling to the promises. Especially the promise that says, even when your faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. Even when the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. Or another song we might sing a lot. Come. Come, fountain of every blessing. I'm prone to wander, and Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. So bind my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's why we sing songs like this. So you would be reminded of the confession. And by the way, the word confession here does not mean confession of sin. Hold fast to your confession of sin. No, no, hold fast. And this is a phrase that means the confession of your lips to believe in the gospel. The confession of hope. Are you holding on to the hope that it is Jesus that gets us to God? He's the one that brings us from the depths and the grave, resurrects us with his resurrection and we're seated with him in the heavenly places. 
So hold fast to the hope. Not by looking in and down, but by looking up and at him. Hold fast by remembering the faithfulness for him to keep his promises. Hold fast. Not by trying to hold on as tight as you possibly can, but by remembering he's already holding on to you because he promised he would. Hold fast. By not leaving Jesus. Just stay around and with Jesus. How? How do we do that? Third and finally, by being in a church, consider stirring up one another toward love and good works. I think the, the, the logic here is that these three things, faith and hope and love, are produced very practically, very tangibly in the community of the local church. This is a continuation, really, in many ways of last week's message, the descent and the ascent of Jesus. This journey, its end goal is to bring about a church on the earth a church that's unified around the gospel, a church that is filled with a new heart and is growing in maturity, and that maturity here in Hebrews chapter 10 is love and good works. The word stir up is not pleasant. It, it means to agitate. And I know some of you might think, I know plenty of Christians that are very agitating. I know many churches when I attend that there's just, yeah, they're really good at obeying Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. They're agitating. When we see in some translations, they say, consider how to spur one another on. That's when them trying to capture the idea of a spur, like somebody riding a horse and spurring the horse with a sharp edge to get it to, to go forth and, and move on. That kind of bothering and agitating to say, go, go toward love and good works. Do you realize that the church is to be a place that gives you what you need and not just what you want? That a church commits one another as an interconnected family and not isolated individuals. The word here for meeting together is the word we get for synagogue and it has to do with a congregation. There's an aggregation, and there's a congregation. Many people, as we talked about last week, look at church as an aggregation. That means an event. Church is an event. It's an aggregation of people. It just means a bunch of people got together, and there was some sort of thing on the stage, and that's what brought them just for that moment, and then they left and went on their way, whether or not they talked to the people around them or they were interconnected with each other in any sort of fashion is irrelevant. It's about the event. That's what an aggregation is like. It's like a sack of marbles. There's something that brought them together for a moment, and then when you untie the string, the marbles just kind of go all over and people go on their merry way. The church is not a sack of marbles. We are not individuals that just every once in a while on Sunday mornings we we're collectively together because Pastor Phil's preaching or teaching. No! We are the grapes on a vine that are intimately interconnected with one another because there is a branch named Jesus Christ that we get life from and we grow and we bear fruit and we have love and good deeds only because of the vine. It is not because we heard some message or some event and then because of, of some sort of special charismatic leader, teacher, some good music, some sort of thing that then brought us here, and then we leave and go on our merry way. That picture of the church that's so prevalent does not exist in Holy Scripture. The church is a congregation, 
a synagogue, a meeting place where people come to stir one another up toward love and good deeds, to give you what you need and not just what you want. This is why I said last week at the very end of our gathering, you know, it would be okay if every once in a while you felt uncomfortable for the sake of love. Not just uncomfortable for the sake of let's just bother each other all the time and be annoying, but for the sake of love and love and good deeds, good works, the works that flow out of abiding in the vine and of holding fast to Jesus Christ. This is why we cannot neglect meeting together. This is not the verse that we use to kind of pull out of context and say, see, you must come to church every week, and if you don't, you're not a Christian. This is the verse we say, see, you should come to church every week because this is the means by which we cling and hold on and hold fast and are reminded of promises. How many times are you being reminded of the promises of God throughout your week? Is that just what you hear regularly in the news? The promises of God. I want to remind you yet again of the confession of hope that are based on the promises of God. Is that on your Twitter feed? Where else are you going to hear the promises of God so that you then will be stirred up toward love and good works and hold fast? In other words, these are the very practical measures that are commanded to us so that you climb yourself up in Christ and have him take you into the heavenly places. This is the goal of worship, and it is the means of worship that's spelled out. As we come alongside of each other, that's what this word encouraging one another is. Yes, we might agitate, but in a loving way, for the sake of love. And we also come along those, and this is the word paraclete. It means those that need comfort and encouragement. The church can be both an agitating place and a healing balm. And we don't have to pick between either one of them. We should do what fits the occasion as is necessary. So faith, hope, and love, all in the context of a local church here on earth. And as we live in that way, to worship, it takes us into the heavens. So let me conclude by saying this. Embassy Church, let us not forsake one another. Because Jesus Christ was forsaken on the cross, alienated, abandoned, left outside of the camp, as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13. Why was he outside? So that you and I could come into the holy place. We should spur each other on toward love and good works because Jesus as he hung on that cross, as that perfect sacrifice for sins, as his blood dripped, he was speared, agitated, in order to show you how much God loves us. So that when you sin, you hate your sin because you see how Christ gave everything, his very life, for that sin. And it doesn't drive you away from church and it doesn't drive you away from prayer. It opens up access by the blood of Jesus to prayer to God, to church. And we should encourage one another. Come alongside one another. Come right into the depth of our struggles and our pains and our sufferings because the God of the Bible is the God who did not stay on top of the mountain and say, you guys want to go to heaven? Climb on up. I don't care which way you go. There's a bunch of different paths. But I'll be here and I'll be waiting. That's not the God of the Bible. 
We should come alongside of and reach out and go the extra mile because Jesus Christ comes alongside of us, meets us where we're at, and encourages us, walks with us. He's the crutch that we desperately need. He's the resurrection of our life. He finds us not just crippled and unable to climb a mountain. He finds us dead in our sins. And he resurrects us to new life. And so let's climb up in Christ to know that the God of the Bible left his throne, came and met us where we're at, and he, through his cross, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection and ascension, is bringing us to God the Father. So let's pray. And as we do so, be freshly reminded that we can pray right now only because Christ has died, risen, and ascended. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come in the name of Jesus, for there is no other name in heaven or on the earth by which we can be saved, and there is no other name by which we should pray to you. So we come now humbling ourselves before the finished and final work of Jesus on the cross by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence and boldness to cast all of our cares upon you, to come to your throne of grace in our time of need and ask for help. We know your word has said that we are nothing. Compared to your infinite majesty and greatness, we are little. And therefore, it is assuming a lot for a little human like us, a little congregation of people to think that we could talk to the Almighty God the way we are right now. But we praise you. We thank you for opening up the way to heaven, giving access, backstage passes to the Holy of Holies, Entrance in to your very near presence is not just a possibility. It is a reality even now as we speak, as we gather, as we worship. The way to worship has been blown open. The door blown off of its hinges. The veil torn in two. All separation that would separate us from you, Father, has been mended, healed, restored, a bridge has been bridged. A path has been made. Father, we want to celebrate this amazing privilege, and I want to pray that just being reminded of these privileges will cause the members, attenders, visitors of Embassy Church to draw near. I pray, Father, that your spirit will stir us up toward love and good deeds, that we would not give up meeting together as is the habit of some, not just today in 2021, but it's been the habit of many throughout the history of the church. We want to pray that we would be filled with your Spirit to, to hold on to Christ, knowing that he first loved us and holds on to us. We want to pray, Father, that you would help us to believe in our unbelief that we would have faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.